Tony Walton is an award-winning director and production designer. His work is vast and stretches from Broadway productions and operas to films and television. Over the course of his long and coveted career, Tony has been honored with 16 Tony Award nominations for his Broadway sets and costumes. Of those nominations, he received awards for Pippin, House of Blue Leaves, and Guys and Dolls. In his television career, he has worked on over 20 films and has received tremendous recognition for his work on Bob Fosse's All That Jazz, where he won an Oscar, and Death of a Salesman, where he received an Emmy. In 1991, Tony Walton was elected to the Theater Hall of Fame, and currently he resides in New York City with his wife, Jen Leroy Walton. Tony Walton, uh, welcome to the creative process. Uh, just looking over your entire career, it's an amazing. Uh, you know, start from starting out from your very first uh, who could have a better beginning than, you know, working with uh, uh, the Noel Coward's material? Yes. Uh. Uh, just, just tell us how, how you got into and being an art director, costume. I have to, I have to explain because you do a lot. You direct now. Yes. You've been an art director, set designer. How did, how did that come to you? Costume yeah. design, yes. I apologize for my voice, which is got smacked out by chemo and um. Um, every so often I get a little uh, little injection in one of my vocal cords to pattern it up oh, so wow. it can reach the other one you know mm -hmm. but it's I had that done recently and it doesn't seem to have quite had a full effect yet maybe it will while we're talking oh, all right. <laughs> Well, let's try. I'll try to stretch it to the limit. Okay. So well, here's, it's happened by accident because I always assumed I would follow in my father's footsteps. So I did. And he uh, was a doctor. He was a, yes, a yes. great surgeon. Surgeon, actually. yeah. And um, he had, during the war, during the Blitz, he was required to stay in our home territory because we were in the Blitz area of London in the early, early years of the war and so of course there were lots of people with broken bones, broken everything you know. um, and he in addition to servicing all the hospitals around he had a treatment rooms in our home wow. so one even as a kid, I was now four I think at the beginning of the Blitz um, one could see the transition from people coming in completely immobilized mm -hmm. to gradually starting mm -hmm. to be restored to a functioning self. And that was very moving. And eventually he was selected by Sister Kenny, who was mm -hmm. sort of the inventor of treatments, the, the first sort of acknowledged successful treatments for polio. And she was, because she had no official letters, medical degrees or anything after her name, she was auditioning for a legit mm -hmm. medical partner. And he was one of the hundreds. Wow. And she selected him. He went to an audition at the Savoy Hotel. And she selected him and then he became the one that started opening polio clinics with her 
Um, and again, he had treatment um, treatment rooms in our home, and so many of the polio kids came there. Mm-hmm. And not only was it possible to notice the somewhat the improvement of them, but also to notice how devastatingly he was affected by the progress or lack of progress of these very young patients. So it seemed like a marvellous, magical thing to be observing. And I always thought that seemed like a worthwhile thing to do. So I focused on the medically related subjects in school Mm -hmm. and college, you know, physics and chemistry and biology and so on. Mm -hmm. And those were the subjects that I did least well in, uh, in the exams that, that, so to say, told you where what you should be pursuing mm-hmm. and going on into college. <clears throat> so I was put into a classics remove instead of these specialist mm-hmm. medically related subjects. Um, and we used to have to learn acres of Virgil and Horace and so on. What a great grounding students well, are giving these days. Some, no, it was in many ways. But the fact that we had to learn like a 20-minute chunk of wow. Virgil or whatever it was mm-hmm. and then narrate it to the class. Mm-hmm. But we all thought very tedious. Mm-hmm. So I eventually rather cheekily brought in this, a vaudevillian routine first <laughs> about Albert and the lion who went to a, a famous seaside place called Blackpool, mm-hmm. what was noted for fresh air and fun. Yeah. And Mr. and Mrs. Ramsbottom <laughs> went there every year with their son. Uh-huh. The weather was quite disappointing. The waves, there was piddling in the small. There was no wrecks and nobody drowned it. But nothing to laugh at at all. <laughs> anyway, this, this was a popular choice for my fellow students. Yeah. But our teacher was very angered, mm-hmm. very upset, and he dismissed me from the classics removed. Um, and because I had just started to do posters for the debating society or the drama oh, society, wow. he thought maybe I would benefit from being sent to an art school in Oxford. Mm-hmm. So I got sent to the Oxford School of Technology, Art and Commerce, wow. a Ruskinian mm-hmm. place. and. Um, after the contact that made it possible for me to go there, there was very little contact between the college I was at and the art school, which, of course, gave me the opportunity to pretty much program my own life. Uh-huh. Because each school presumed that if I wasn't with them, I must be with the other one, you know. So I managed to make a fair amount of free time for myself, during which I made marionettes, rather ambitious mm-hmm. marionettes, and put on marionette shows, sometimes in the college gardens in Oxford, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started out with sort of little vaudevillian marionette shows, and eventually did the magic flute, mm-hmm. which, given its magic and so forth, was a wonderful choice. And I was 
never a teenager, wearing every every hat imaginable. Mm-hmm. So designing it, making the heads and hands. My favorite credit was face maker, <laughs> Anthony Walton. <laughs> <laughs> and doing the lighting and operating, uh, Papageno. And on one night, um, the lad who was singing the mm-hmm. role of Papageno got laryngitis. Oh, so wow. I even had to sing it as well. And it happened to be a night at which a great British fine artist that you may well know of, called John Piper. Oh, right, yes. Yes. Um, he had come to see it. Mm-hmm. And we were warned at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, we all knew who he was. He was mm-hmm. very well known in those days. And at the end of the Magic Flute, he sort of worked his way backstage. And it was like a saint having wafted down from a stained glass window mm-hmm. and finding his way in a shock of white hair. And he was as thin as a pencil, you know. <laughs> and, and he came in and stood there for a minute looking at us, uh-huh. putting our marionettes away and so forth. And finally he said, which one is Walton? And I And he pointed at me and said, you should do this. And I said, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> this is theatre and you should yes. design it and put it on and whatever it is. you." And he said, and I'm still a teacher. Emeritus at the Slade School of Fine Art in London. Oh, yeah. And if Wonderful you would like school. to go there, I'll make sure you do. And mm-hmm. So I did. And uh, and I paid my way for going there by starting out as an actor, which I was very cocky about, mm-hmm. at Wimbledon Repertory Theatre. Mm-hmm. <coughs> in those days, I had a voice. Right. <laughs> and... Um, it was fascinating because I had all the acting I had done up to that point tended to be at either school or college, or, you know, and I had n- sort of knowingly never performed in front of an audience that actually had paid to watch us, and I became very self-conscious mm-hmm. <laughs> at the fact that all these people had not only chosen to come and see us, but had and I also um, was a sort of coincidence, like my Papageno student losing his voice mm-hmm. for that event. My sister, who was also in the production, got mm-hmm. laryngitis on this wow. first performance. So I was given her lines as well. So uh-huh. maybe a bit more nervous. And by the end of that first performance, I went to the actor manager and I said... Um, is there anything else I could do at your theatre yeah. rather than acting? I don't think I'm an actor. Uh-huh. Um, and I'd love to do something else to keep my three guineas a week salary. Uh-huh. like $10 a week. Yeah. Salary, you know? And he said, well, of course, we always need stagehands. Mm-hmm. And I jumped at that and actually turned out to be an amazing thing. And I probably learned more during that period from mm-hmm. having to deal with the, so to say, nuts and bolts, the 
practical aspects of everything than I did from the art school, which is totally idealistic yeah. in its approach and chose not to teach you any of the technical aspects, like ground, a, ground plans or drafting. You know. Sure, that's a big problem now too. There's, there's some great schools, but also yes. there's a lot of theory-based and I, I'm working with a lot of students and they kind of they come to me and I'm surprised like oh yes. you, but you don't know how yes yeah in the coffee breaks yeah. um, a little bit like my mischief with Albert and Eli, uh-huh. I um, used to go and tackle our teachers who were fine artists you know and, mm-hmm. and wonderful and and say it's depressing mm-hmm. to see what happens when you give us a project and those of us who don't have any training come up with God knows what Mm -hmm. and all the gals who came from the same scenic design school in Bristol Mm -hmm. come up with sort of the same solution Uh because there they were actually taught how to do the technical stuff and um, he said, yes, but that is so depressing. Uh-huh. They've already learned too much about the technical aspects. And oh, it le- right. leads them to come up, come through the same sort of creative tunnels. and the, sure. So their work looks a little alike. Um, and that made some sense to me, but it also frustrated me a lot because I knew mm-hmm. from having seen their other work that they were all very gifted and could right. easily be taught how to tap into something more personal than their teaching. And he would say that's the key for us. We need you to tap into whatever your own impulse is. Much more important. And in those days, the scenic shops or costume Mm -hmm. shops know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And they'll take your painting or your model or whatever Mm -hmm. it is and they'll say, this guy may be a gifted idiot, but if this thing works, it'll right. be because we managed to make it practical. You know? mm-hmm. And much of European design is still like that. The scenic shops sort of figure it out. America, not at all like that. And England gradually back in those, in the 50s, um, still, stuck in that old technique of having mm. the scenic shops figure it out. So it's a process of interpretation then? Yes, yeah. Well, it's interesting mm. because it is, a, it is a fine line of like knowing too little. I don't think it's great to know too little. It's nice to, to, to not know what you don't know. Then you, <clears throat> then you have to realize you're yes, stuck in yes, it. And yeah. that's, that's nice. But, or knowing too much. So that yeah. finding that line... So in that time I was trying to find things to use in my argument. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what some of this is. Oh yes, please do. And tell us what this is that you're... This was, I had to do the uh, keynote speech Uh at a uh, creative arts conference in Las Mm -hmm. Vegas last year. and this, forgive me reading this, but no, I wrote, creativity is perhaps the ultimate mystery. I veer wildly between opposing views on it. 
and have differing feelings depending on whether the creator is isolated or a collaborator. Gropius said the artist is an exalted craftsman in rare moments of inspiration, moments beyond the control of his will, the grace of heaven may cause his work to blossom into art. But proficiency in his craft is essential to every artist. Therein lies the source of creative imagination. And Steve Sondheim said art is craft mm. and uh, not imagination, not inspiration. Mm. Um, and I found things from other people. Rilke, I love this. Mm -hmm. He mistrusted any artist knowing participation in his own creative process. Mm -hmm. Ideally, he said, an artist should not become conscious of his insights. He should head so quickly into the work that he's unable to recognize these insights in the moment of their transition. The artist who waits in an ambush there, watching, detaining them, will, alas, find them transformed, like the beautiful gold in the fairy tale. And surely all art is the result of one's having been in danger. We are most definitely called upon to test and try ourselves against the utmost. For the utmost represents nothing other than that singularity in us which must enter into the work as our personal madness, so to speak. And that's pure yeah. Rilke. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of creativity, be, creativity being our personal madness was very attractive mm -hmm. to me. Yes. So I tried without quite knowing that this was something that Orson Welles was up to, mm -hmm. to go fishing for those mad moments, you know. Right. And sometimes using either exhaustion mm -hmm. or a glass of scotch or whatever. What, what, whatever, <laughs> whatever you need, whatever you need, whatever to, takes to, you there. To let my control system relax or collapse. Sure. And sometimes... I can even remember it in this room because it used to be my work room. Oh. And um, remembering like at four or five in the morning doing things and throwing them around the floor mm -hmm. and the cats would walk all through the way. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then occasionally glancing and saying, thinking, who did that? And that's clearly not by the Tony I know from Walton on Thames. You know? oh, and, yeah. and what leaked into it to make it something that I don't immediately, I'm not immediately able to acknowledge mm -hmm. as entirely my own work. And those moments, of course, always seemed amazingly magical. Mm -hmm. And then trying to find a way to encourage those moments often tended to do what Rilke warned us against, you know, lying in wait for them. You know. <laughs> but it, it's, it's good to have some kind of knowledge, but not like it's a recipe, because you can never be an right, exact recipe, right? right? Like if you're looking for like a new quantity, like, yes. like that literal 
some people that are literalists, they say, oh, so that's <clears throat> what you do. That's how you do it. Yes. So if I follow one, two, three, four. But of course, you have to kind of go, you know, five, six, yes, seven, yes, one, yeah. to, you know, do yeah. that. But if you, I think it's good to at least be aware of what might have put you in that mm -hmm. state. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's good, you Absolutely, know. Absolutely, yes. I mean, um, otherwise you, you, you waste time. Yes. <laughs> like, it's not like wasted, but yeah. Well, that's nice, true. Yeah. I mean, I think wasted time is frequently valuable. Yeah, but it's um, there's, it's controlled dreaming, so it's yes. kind of nice to know, you yes. know, like oh, this is this is the pillow that makes me dream those dreams. <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah. Um, did you work? You adapted Orson Welles. Did you work with Orson Welles or no? <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. In fact, I only met him socially. All right. Um, I was sort of desperate to work with him, but. He was famous for not paying his designers. Uh, so yeah. Sometimes, he years later, one yeah. Irish designer that he worked with said that years after a Shakespearean um, amalgam that they had done together initially in Ireland and then went to London, um, and he had never been paid for the designs, but years later, Orson Welles turned up at his house and came into his kitchen and opened a suitcase and it was full of dollars. <laughs> he was, I, from what I hear, he was a character. I had, I had, I worked, you know, towards the end of his life with um, Alexander Salkin, who was a bit mm. of a character, his family, mm -hmm. but he who directed the the, pro, the trial of Orson, right. and so I would hear stories, but um, yeah, but I mean, let's just talk about some of the people you've collaborated with. Um, well, just to <clears throat> oh, you tell to, me. Yeah put a little ribbon on the top mm -hmm. of Orson Welles. <laughs> he, luckily, when I was at the Slade mm -hmm. Art School, he, he was in a tricky period of his career where it was very hard for him to raise money to do anything. And I think he liked that almost. Well, it See was, it added, it was yeah. another challenge. <laughs> yeah. yes. um, and so he was living in Europe and he was trying everything. And he had written over the years a dramatic adaptation of Moby Dick. Wow. And as an art student, I went to see it and ended up, he wrote it, directed it, starred in it as Ahab. Awesome. I'm sure it had something to do with the design. Because yeah. he drew very well. Yes. <laughs> and painted. Um, <clears throat> and it ran it was a limited season because he had to come back to New York to do King Lear which he eventually did do in a wheelchair because he fell and broke his leg in wow. rehearsals anyway he, uh, I think he did about three weeks worth of it in London and I went to see every performance I could wow. probably all but about five of them, I should say. Mm -hmm. And I used to take a fellow art student mm -hmm. friend with me each time. See, yeah. Because it was such an astonishing, astonishingly inventive in every way mm -hmm. piece of work. Peter Hall, you know, oh, yes. um, always said it was the most creative and inventive piece of stagecraft he had ever seen. And he also thought that Orson Welles' Otello was the worst. He said, <laughs> these extremes. Yeah. Um, 
but it was remarkable. He set it on backstage using the elements mm-hmm. of a theatrical backstage mm-hmm. to create the impression of being on a ship. And right. of course, there is an overlap there uh-huh. because ship workers. Yes, yeah. all the terms are the same. Yeah. The deck, you know, yeah. and um, the. Uh, oh, I mind. I could normally give you about. I mean, you know, like the walking, the boards, and all. Yeah, the, yeah, it's, yes, yeah. yeah. And um, so he had the rolled up drops furled, mm-hmm. you know, hanging mm-hmm. overhead, mm-hmm. and there were loose chords coming down from them, so the actors could occasionally, kind of choreographically, make. These right. sails move, and the audience used to get quite seasick. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's that, that was, shows you that yes, it's it was extraordinary. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that was the thing I tried to remember mm-hmm. for Guildhall, um, uh-huh. and I was lucky enough in that. Oh, yes, Simon, Simon Carroll. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was writing the first of his world's biographies when I was just about to do the production in Guildhall. And I found him in London and said, are you having any luck interviewing people who were in that mm-hmm. original production? And he said, you know, sadly, most of them have gone already. Mm-hmm. But there's Joan Plowright and Kenneth mm-hmm. Williams and oh, wow. three or four people that I was lucky enough to get. Um, and I have them on tape. I can't wait to have those tapes transcribed. Oh, wow. So I said to him, would you let me transcribe them? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give you the transcriptions mm-hmm. for free if you let me keep mm-hmm. a copy for myself. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did, and it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, because some people, like Kenneth Williams at that time, was a very famous actor. Oh, but he was great. And he's very yeah. astute as well. I yes. mean, he's funny, mm. but so astute. Yes, he's sharp as a Articulate. Yeah. Um, and he was playing the old carpenter. Um, and he, because of the sort of improvisatory nature mm. of what Wells was doing, found it very pretentious. Oh, so right. he sort of rose against it a little bit. Whereas Joan Plyright, this was one of her very first roles, wow. and she was totally in awe, and uh-huh. probably in love. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I think he had originally cast her as uh, uh, Desdemona. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the Moby Dick production, mm-hmm. the troupe, was a Victorian troupe touring with King Lear. And just as the production is about to begin, Wells, the old actor, manages, um, so to say, gentleman's gentleman, comes toppling into the stage, trips over the sill, and hurls a whole bunch of scripts all over the stage. And they all rush to pick them up. And he, well, says, is that my King Lear? And we should rehearse the, whatever it is, the thunderstorm scene. Mm -hmm. It's getting very careless. Um, And they start muttering amongst themselves. 
careless. He's the only one who doesn't know his own lines. <laughs> Which actually turned out to be useful because the experience of seeing that over and over while I was still in mm-hmm. art school definitely coloured the, uh, the sort of de- determination that I had been having mm-hmm. to learn all the nuts and bolts. Because by then I was functioning as a stagehand right. and willy-nilly learning stuff mm-hmm. that I never realised was going to be so useful in days to come. Right. Things like rigging, you know. Yeah. How I remember doing um, Sleeping Beauty for oh, American Ballet Theatre at the Met. One time I suggested a, a rather complicated movement mm-hmm. for the uh, hippogriff we had coming down from mm-hmm. the princess's palace um, instead of a boat it was mm-hmm. a, like a swan or a hippogriff you know? mm-hmm. and, and its behaviour and the way that its wings turned into this wrapped around the mast and became its sails and so wow. on was quite complicated and they kept saying we'll need to computerize this and put it on a winch and I'd say I think you could do it with three pulleys and mm-hmm. just do it in an old fashioned uh, way and they were totally persuaded that that couldn't work mm-hmm. but eventually we did try that because it was mm-hmm. going to save them a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah, sometimes the old ways. <laughs> yes, best, yeah. and it worked. And of course, sometimes an old way like that creates an effect that sort of half tells you, half tells the audience what's happening and how, and that it adds to the magic of it. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's kind not, of nice mm. to see. It's like Tony the Marinettes. It's it's kind of nice to see the strings, yes. the awkwardness of yes, it. Yes, it's yes. nice. It reminds them of the artistry, and exactly, that's the thing yes, that yes. they kind of get fascinated in thinking how this magic is made. Yes, yeah? yes. So um, at any rate, that's been my sort of struggle ever since to try and do as Orson said, go fishing for the magical mistakes, the uh, divine mistakes, I think you call them. So let's talk about some your first uh, professional experiences. I understand theatre, um, conversation piece, Noel Coward, is that right? And then Mary Poppins in America, film. yes. Yeah, just I had done some things in London mm-hmm. um, and at Wimbledon Rep where I was sure. briefly an actor and then for mm-hmm. some months... And while I was being a stagehand, I was asked by the scenic artist there if he would, if I would help him paint some of the scenery, co-design, and then I got an occasional production of my own to do. So that's how it got started. So when I came to America at 21 to join my fiance, who was 20, the famous uh, Julie Andrews, the widow who had opened in My Fair Lady, I think, at the age of 19, and I came very yeah. soon after that. <clears throat> um, I was sort of willy-nilly, without quite having planned it, 
um, a designer. Yeah. And at the Slade School, uh, you were taught the whole board of, ball of wax, settings, costumes, lighting to some mm-hmm. degree, in a very fascinatingly primitive way. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I say, it was sort of an attempt to give you a key to your own instinctual responses to whatever the kind of prime mover of the source material was, right. whether you would you would feel it was the composer or you know yeah. I did some Benjamin Britten operas, and he was such a particular um, talent that listening to his music. I found it was very easy to move forward in a kind of backwards or negative way by saying, well, that's not green, mm-hmm. or that's not prickly, or whatever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and managing to, you know this, you know, yeah. to dismiss a series of things until there was only a certain number left that were permissible mm-hmm. within what one was receiving from mm-hmm. his work. Most of the work I was doing had um, was strongly influenced by the great English designers of that time, um, Oliver Messel and Cecil Beaton, and, um, and also by illustrators like Ronald Searle and so. So. I was given a very fancy exhibition in St. James Gallery in London and um, it was somewhat built around the caricatures that I was then doing for Playbill because the gallery owners thought that if Charles Lawton and Laurence Olivier knew that he was in a caricature in this gallery Maybe he would turn up for the opening, oh. <laughs> which did sort of work, strangely, you know. And the upper floors were all my design work. And it was very lucky. Everything sold, almost everything. And so I went back to say goodbye to everything while they were taking it down. And I was sort of stunned. It was really the first time I'd had a chance to see it all kind of from a distance um, and all at once mm-hmm. um, and I realised how similar the inspiration for everything was mm-hmm. that it stemmed from this Oliver Messel well, I used to call it Cecil Messel <laughs> um, style and with a little bit of Ronald Searle and others um, and I thought this is bad news. Uh, Not only could I very easily get bored by, so to say, repeating myself, but I'm clearly not allowing the nature of the original material to drive the little engine, you know. Um, So then I willfully took, if I had a choice, took every job based on how different it was from the previous one 
or started to use a medium that I hadn't been using, such as clay or something. <clears throat> or start out doing sort of Rorschach tests and trying to develop from there. You know. um, and that became quite productive. So that by the time I was working full-time in America, I, I had that ambition. Wasn't always able to pull it off, but tried very hard to come up with something that didn't remind the audience, or me particularly, mm -hmm. of anything else that they were familiar with. Right. So instead of getting a, oh, I get what we're in for, <laughs> as they arrived in the theatre, you know, they had to use whatever the design was as the sort of visual funnel through which they were going to learn the nature of this particular beast, you know. Wow. And then that's turned out to be probably the most satisfying part of doing this because it never allowed me to get bored at all. I was always sure. off on some different dementia. <laughs> Yeah, it's mm. good, you know, yeah, the formulas can make it stale for you, yes, and you always yes, want it to be, I mean, that's the, you know, when one weighs it up, you know, there, there's the lean years, the struggle years, you know, but what what is the satisfying aspect of being an artist? Yes, yes. It's always being able to, like, surprise yourself totally. and to be constantly yes. learning. That's I think the that's perfect that's, word, yes. Yeah, that's yes. so nice, because you're, what you're doing is you're, it's kind of like being allowed yeah. to be play and be a child forever. It is play. It's why they yeah. call it plays. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like to be able to discover the world and refresh your senses constantly. Yes. So yes. there is the labor aspect of it, yes. but we have so many rewards. Yes. So let's talk. So you then you you'd worked, you worked on the No Coward mm -hmm. conversation piece. And what was that like? And then I'd like to talk about Mary Poppins and some of your other, because we, we haven't even touch the scratch the surface of your mm -hmm. work so I wanted uh, well it was it was incredible because both my mum and my dad had grown up equidistant mm -hmm. from Noel, the, the home in which Noel Coward grew mm -hmm. up and even though he, he was pretty openly a gay guy at a mm -hmm. time when it wasn't advisable yeah to uh, openly be that um, <clears throat> I was always very taken with the fact that they, my mum and dad, who came from very um, sort of old-fashioned backgrounds, mm -hmm. right. were very non-judgmental. Mm -hmm. In fact, really appreciative mm -hmm. of this local boy mm -hmm. with this incredibly variegated gift mm -hmm. who wore so many hats, you know. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> And they had his work around, mm -hmm. not just publications, but the old 78 RPM records, you know. Mm -hmm. So we were, my sisters and my brother and I were um, not subjected, but that was available to us. And I became a, a, sort of an insane fan from mm -hmm. quite an early age. And I got that job accidentally. Oh, yeah. um, because I was applying to the union, mm -hmm. which is uh, the institution that permits you mm -hmm. to design, mm 
once you're a member of it. And to be a member in those days, you had to take a three-day exam mm -hmm. in front of them and uh, uh, do a project beforehand, which you would send in. And it was, I mean, if I started to talk about it, that's all I would talk about. It goes on and on. It was yeah. very strange. And it was for all three disciplines. So there were a hundred of us taking mm -hmm. the exam and three of us got in. Oh. The thing I remember most was the third day. In the first two days, you had worked on sometimes um, verbal interviews. Who was president when this chair was created? Oh, right. <laughs> oh. um, but the third day, you did a 10-foot square canvas uh. um, based on a blow-up of, we all sent in our projects and they squared up a 10-inch square section mm -hmm. of these products and reproduced them in black and white, Xeroxed, you know. And they shuffled them and gave us each somebody else's <laughs> oh. chunk of their design, you know. And you had to, because what you got was black and white, you had to come up with the palette and, you know, mm -hmm. develop it as best you could. For me, it was a miracle that I got in because I wasn't trained in the way that all the other people had come up through Yale or other schools or colleges that did have a course focusing on stage design. Um, and for the exam, as I mentioned, we were required to do setting costumes and lighting and mysteriously I got in in all three categories and so when the fellow next to me who was a Harvard student and a great friend of the producers um, and soon to be director of conversation piece and he had been invited by them to design it but because he didn't pass the Jungian exam, he wasn't allowed to. Wow. But he said, you know, there was a fellow beside me, a Brit, I think, number 74. <laughs> we, were all, we were all <clears throat> no-name creatures. And, uh, he said, uh, I think he must have got in, and he would be quite suitable for this piece. Mm. So I got it completely by accident. You've had a and lot of like these moments, yes, you know, a body poem totally. leads you to art yes, school. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, as Wells would say, a divine accident. Yes. <laughs> and so I did do the lighting. The producers said, mm -hmm. supposedly, you know how to do this. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I've never done it before, but, you know, <laughs> I've been watching, I'll have a go. Sure. <clears throat> and when we're doing the show, we finally get to the dress rehearsal. And a beautiful little Art Deco theatre in what is now the Trump something or other. Um, it was called the Barbizon Plaza. Oh. And it was like a little theatre on an ocean-going liner, you know, it was just mm -hmm. gorgeous. And there I was designing everything and doing the lighting. And Noel Card, who was overseeing the whole thing, the kindest man in the history of the world. Yeah. And here's one example of it. 
he said to me, uh, young Tony, I think I'm still <laughs> 21, yeah, do we truly believe that the weather in Brighton in the summer of 1815 was this doer and inclement? <laughs> I said, oh, I'm so sorry. He said, yes, it all seems very dark. Uh, it doesn't seem a lot of fun. <laughs> and it happened to be the dinner break. Yeah. Both of you went off to dinner. And I phoned up the leading lighting designer of that time, mm -hmm. who had also lit My Fair Lady and mm -hmm. was to light Camelot and Paris and LaGuardia Airport, and, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> Abe Fader was his name. And he was the one who had written to the Union mm -hmm. because he had seen some of my things on Julie's dressing room wall and said, ah, you're a painter of light. You're the kind of designer we lighting designers need. Yeah. I said, oh, thank you very much. And he, he said, if you want to take the exam, I'd be happy to mm -hmm. promote you for it. And so he wrote the letter. And just during the week before I was about to go for the live part of the exam, I ran into this wonderful character who was like a little Damon Runyon mm -hmm. creature, always with a bit of stub of a cigar in the corner of his mouth and he said hey what you doing and I said well th much thanks to you I'm doing the union exam he said oh great what are you doing for your project and with some pride I said I'm doing Benjamin Britten's turn of the screw and he blew his cigar across Fifth Avenue <laughs> he said do a hit for Christ's sakes what did they know from Benjamin Britten? <laughs> so I switched to Carousel the last yeah. month. I'm sure that was the reason I did okay. Yeah. And plus, having been a painter, Wimbledon Rat, having to do this 10-foot square mm -hmm. at great speed in a state of total exhaustion, mm -hmm. because by that third day, we were all imbeciles, you know. Sure. And having a hard time even standing up to mm -hmm. do this. Um, it stood me in incredibly good stead. So mm -hmm. anyway, I got I called up Abe and I said, um, I'm in trouble here with Noel Coward. He said, I'll be right there. <laughs> and he turned up within about 15 minutes shouting for a ladder. And he climbed up the ladder and started yelling at the electricians, who were thrilled to see mm -hmm. who it was. Because he, he had coincidentally been Orson Welles' lighting designer for the... What's his theatre called? Mercury. It was where he was doing this extraordinary work at the time that somebody saw the nature of his gift and asked mm -hmm. him to do a movie. This yeah. is the first choice. So at 25 years old, he did mm -hmm. Susan Kane. Yeah. And Abe was his lighting designer. Uh, so by the time that Coward came back from dinner. Abe had had these electricians hurtling from place to place, changing colours and changing mm -hmm. focus and so on. And as he walked in, Coward said, Ah, the weather seems to have improved appreciably. Let's press on. <laughs> <laughs> he could have said, 
uh, I found a designer during yeah. the dinner break, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you can go home now. <laughs> but he was extraordinary. So that yeah. was an amazing, amazing stroke of luck. And the nature of that, with which on the radio, he frightened all of America oh, yes, by the, the war, war of the, the world. world. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this was a Regency piece, mm -hmm. uh, conversation piece. And um, that was a period I loved visually, so it was right in my court. So I, was, I got lucky with that and other things mm -hmm. came as a result of it. And then that leads you to Mary Poppins, I don't know the interview. Well, that was quite a bit later, yeah. but um, I think conversation piece would have been the mid 57 probably and Mary Poppins was 63 oh, right. um, in the meantime Hal Prince I'd you been nominated doing, for your first Oscar in that well Hal Prince who was then strictly just a producer mm -hmm. um, was producing a funny thing that happened on the way to the forum yeah. and he'd seen a couple of things of mine actually in London mm -hmm. and I knew him a little bit socially and actually belonged to his bowling team <laughs> <laughs> and then the opposing team was often the young and yet relatively untried Stephen Sondheim oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Tony Perkins and a very oh, wow. strange motley group of people anyway he Hal invited me to do forum which, as you probably know, is a sort of vaudevillian musical. Steve Sondheim's first work for which he did both the score and the lyrics. And jumping now, um, I think that opened in 62. Yes. So um, when... <coughs> Disney came in, Julie was in Camelot, and a number of his team had just seen her on the Ed Sullivan show doing a chunk of Camelot with Richard Burton. Mm -hmm. And they all said, you've got to go and see, she's on there, you know. So he came to New York and he decided not to go directly to the show because he was travel-weary, but to go see something else and just have a relaxed time and then go to the matinee the next day, which he did. And so that evening, he went to see a funny thing happened on the way to the forum because he was a huge fan of vaudevillian and burlesque performers. Mm -hmm. And his films are filled with them. Mm -hmm. Even Jiminy Cricket, you know, his uh -huh. ukulele Ike, who was uh -huh. a fan. Um, so he had seen forum when he came to talk to Julie. And uh, at some point, I had popped into their interview and he had said, what do you do, young man? And he said, wait, I think I just saw some of your work last night. Mm -hmm. Were you the designer on? Mm -hmm. And Julie actually had a couple of the costume sketches on mm -hmm. the wall. And he said, yes, that's Senex, right? I you know. And he said, uh, you know, next time we meet, you should bring your portfolio. 
And I said, we, not long ago, just before Camelot, did some TV shows together, collaborated on them, and decided that we shouldn't really work together simultaneously because <laughs> you can't be as supportive as you would like to be yeah. to your partner during those situations. And he said, um, but isn't it true that in six months or so, Julie's going to be having your first baby? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah. Well, you don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't want to turn up just as an observer, you know, yeah. or cheerleader. Anyway, he worked on me for a while, and I'm very grateful to say that he persuaded me that I would be an idiot not to. He said, we've got to have an English designer anyway. Yeah. Why shouldn't it be you? So that's how that came about. So all these things it's weirdly it's, came yeah, about without my particular trying for them. Yeah. Yeah. So chance and surprise. But being ready, being open and saying yes, yes, yes. you know, just seeing this. Yes. And I once saw an interview with Zeffirelli, Dick Cabot, uh -huh. when he had his interview show a long time ago. Anyway, yes, uh, he was interviewing Fellini, mm -hmm. and Fellini said two things that I'll never forget. The first, which is not easily absorbable in the, in the days of female... Empowerment? Uh, yes, empowerment. Yeah. Cabot said to him, you're, you're enviably married to one of the geniuses in the mm -hmm. film business, the most appealing, attractive, gifted girl in our business, mm -hmm. Julietta. And yeah, oh, she was said, great. Oh, Knights of Kabiria. Yeah. Oh, we can't anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he said, yes. And he said, but rumor tells us that you flirt with your leading ladies when you're maybe making, more making films. Maybe. Yes, maybe. <laughs> and he said, and Fellini, with some surprise, said, oh, well, I don't think it's very polite not to flirt. <laughs> It's a very European Italian attitude. <laughs> it's more just like habit, you know. It's like, a, you know, yeah, it's just what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the nature mm -hmm. of both film and theatre is flirtatious in order mm -hmm. to get inside yeah. and bring... I also Surprising. think when you think of Latin languages, I mean, and I live in France, you know, the language is gendered. We yes. don't, yeah, and, and I think that not having a gendered language mm -hmm. where it's kind of, it leads is to like an, an androgyny, you know, a way of thinking, yes. but very much in Europe there is still the celebration of both sexes. Yes, yeah. yeah. And women. And yes. Sexism is, is, is a little bit stronger there. Well, I just love that. And, um, and actually, as Jen will tell you with a, any time there's an option for a little flirtation, I'm not opposed. You know? yeah, with the, with <laughs> so I was very happy to hear him say that. Yeah. And then he said, I think Cabot must have said, what is your source, mm -hmm. your way to become connected with your creativity? And um, Fellini said, availability. He says, I have to try and remain available to everything. 
if I organize it to a great degree, which I do, and then I follow that organization, I get a dead thing. Mm -hmm. And so keeping available to surprises, to affection, to whatever happens to be the magic of the moment is crucial to me. And I would have to say, without it, I don't even have a chance of being in any way special. So sure. that sunk in and also fitted with all the feelings I was having. Plus a great American, Russian-American costume designer um, called Boris, um, Boris Aronson, who did most of the Sondheim musicals and so on, was my sort of mentor when I was starting out here. And in a very flattering way, he used to, if we were in the scenic shop at the same time, he used to enjoy wandering around and seeing my things being worked on as well as his things being worked on. Mm. And I was doing some things at the time that incorporated a certain amount of collage, which he was also doing. And so we had a real productive friendship. And when he was invited, trying to get, get, see if I can get this right, by the producer who was about to do the apple tree, um, he said, Stuart Ostro was the producer, he said to Stuart, he said, there's a fella who works somewhat in the style that I'm trying to work in now, maybe even more so, and I think he'd be more suited mm -hmm. to this project than I would. Mm -hmm. So that came courtesy of Boris Aronson. Yes, and that's what's so beautiful as you talk about theatre, musical theatre, mm. is that camaraderie we yes. were saying before, yeah. totally, yes, Jen, yeah. about the family. The lovely thing was that over the years, when we started living together here, 53 years ago, as we've been here, um, the assistants that came in for working with me either as model makers or technical drafting or costume associates or whatever, um, tended to be people who had gone through the American art school system, the design school system. And they had been, I don't know whether this is, was actually an intentional thing or accidental, but they had been permitted to believe that particularly the girls, that if they wanted to take on this profession, they had to be a hermit and focus oh, wow. totally on this. And the idea of being married or having babies, leave that to the other people, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you were pursuing some magic yeah. course. And we had our two kids living with us at the time. Wow. And Jenna was cooking for all these mm -hmm. people who were helping me. Um, and so they saw an example that w seemingly worked mm -hmm. and they all quite a few of them got married to each other <laughs> Jen used to say to a couple that were you're a matchmaker she was, she used to say a couple who were always quarrelling she said those two are going to get married <laughs>
I'm Jesse Jensen, an undergraduate student at the University of Iowa studying communications and media production. I think there is an undeniably unique quality to Tony Walton. His story and his character are inspirational. His collection of work is interdisciplinary, well-renowned, and has touched and involved numerous individuals of the highest stature within the theater and film industries. In this interview, Tony jokingly reveals that it was an act of divine intervention which has led him to his success. However, I believe the secret to his success may be a little more earthly. A burning passion, charming personality, and a beautifully creative mind are just a few attributes that he possesses that have helped him get to this point in his career. As someone who is at the beginning of their own career, it's very assuring to hear from someone like Tony that credentials aren't necessarily the end-all be-all. At the end of the day, some of the biggest determining factors of success are sometimes those that are most easily controlled. The evolution of an artist is continual and everlasting, and Tony later points out that openness has been a key aspect to his own evolution as an artist. Being open to novel, obscure ideas, along with new and unfamiliar jobs, is what helped Tony diversify his work and ensure that he never fell into a formulaic pattern. Being open to collaborations helped him gain connections and respect within these communities, while also allowing for opportunities where creatives were able to feed off each other's ideas and energy. This openness is so important when it comes to building and developing relationships with fellow crew and actors. In the film and theater industries, there are so many moving parts within the system that all must perform harmoniously in order to produce a magical work of art. One small cog in the machine or a singular strained relationship could be the difference between a good or bad show. This is why Tony has always placed such an emphasis on the relationship between actors and set design, as he claims that half an artist's identity on stage comes from the costumes that they're wearing. I've seen the effect different relationships can have on a final product through the shoots that I've been a part of. I think once an artist has finally been involved in a work where there are high levels of cohesiveness and an open atmosphere, they will recognize that difference and continue to chase that the rest of their careers. It has been an honor for me to work on this interview and share my voice alongside the likes of Tony Walton. His stories are bountiful and charming, with his insight being truly unmatched. Thank you for listening to part one of this interview, and be sure to listen to part two and hear more from director and set designer Tony Walton.